I think we're I think we're live. We are indeed live. Well, welcome uh, to this uh, Turkin Connell event uh, here at the Edinburgh Book F Festival. I'm Ian McQuirter um, from the Sunday Herald. Andrew Marr is one of those infuriating people who manages to be both immensely successful and also immensely uh, agreeable. His uh, CV. <laughs> It's extremely unfair, but the unfairness goes on. He's, his CV is like a grand tour of all the plum jobs in British journalism, political editor, political columnist, political commentator, editor, TV superstar, and now author, uh, leaving us wishing he'd leave something for the rest of us. The trouble is that uh, through all this progress through the corridors of journalistic power, no one's ever really found anything particularly nasty to say about Andrew. They will. Uh, except to say... <laughs> except about the size of his ears and his, his habit of waving his hands around. <laughs> and of course, this is very much against the spirit of our tawdry trade of journalism. Now, Andrew, he's, he's uh, of course, most recently been a, a distinguished political editor of the BBC and has managed to uh, provide trenchant commentary uh, on current events, obviously uh, mainly concerning the Iraq War at a time of uh, what is arguably the greatest crisis for the BBC following the Hutton Report and the resignation uh, of the Director General and uh, the Chairman of the Board of Governors. However, Andrew has managed somehow to negotiate that successfully um, while uh, sticking his head up almost nightly um, on television and being asked um, absurd questions about what's going on behind the scenes in number 10. Anyway, he's now uh, provided his own account of a lifetime in the dirty trade. He's hardly old enough uh, to have uh, got his hands that dirty because he's only 45, but it's a right rollicking read which uh, takes us through the watering holes of the street of shame and uh, lifts, the lid off, uh, lifts the lid off the sexual and drinking habits of Westminster politicians. In fact, it should have been called, I think, Westminster Babylon. However, there is a serious point, and the main point Andrew wants to make is well, in fact, it's a kind of manifesto because his reason principally for writing this book is the uh, sad state of British journalism, the fact that there has been an almost complete collapse of public trust, not just in uh, politics, but in the journalists and the newspapers which uh, report principally on it. This is a manifesto for a return, as it were, to uh, the basics of journalism, uh, getting back to the days when uh, facts were sacred, when reporters reported instead of commented, uh, when journalists had shorthand, indeed, uh, and when newspapers uh, paid uh, reporters as much as they paid fly-by-night com commentators. Though I hasten to add, they don't pay me. Don't Never mind. Anyway, um, Andrew, uh, welcome, of course. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, welcome to the uh, Edinburgh Book Festival, to Windy Edinburgh, which you, uh, where you started out your journalist career, of course, in the, in the Scotsman. Now, uh, you, know, you make a great deal about this, that, uh, I'm being serious uh, for a moment, that, that journalism is a bad way and we do need to get back to basics. However, in your own career, it's actually a, really a very long time since you were a reporter. Uh, you make this appeal for getting back to the journalistic uh, values, yet you've been a commentator for most of your professional life. That's a very fair uh, criticism. Um, I mean, I would argue the last five years have been basically reporting. It's, although you're called political editor, most of what I've been doing um, is reporting. And the business of putting together television news packages, which is um, 
extremely hard work and very old-fashioned reporting in a sense. You can't, you can't quote people off the record on television. It's all on tape or it doesn't exist. Um, so I suppose one of the things I wanted to do when I went back to the BBC was to return to the coalface of reporting. Um, but I would distinguish, I, at one point for the book, I counted up the number of columnists um, working very regularly in the national press as mainstream columnists. And it comes to well over 200. Um, this enormous eruption, the babble of columnists everywhere. Among that babble, there are people who actually pick up the phone, go out, you know, read abstruse reports, do proper work, and use the column as a way of actually telling the reader or um, the viewer in some cases stuff they didn't know, things they didn't know. But an awful lot of it is absolutely repetitive, recycled um, garbage from people who've, you know, they've, they've, they've read a rival columnist whom they disagree with, so they simply re repeat again and again. And one of the things I, I feel about newspapers, uh, we could talk more about this, is that it's become airless, a lot of it. It's a constant circulation of the same pieces of information, quite often wrong, but just recycled and regurgitated. And I think one of the reasons for the crisis in the trade, and there is one, is simply that there hasn't been enough fresh air reporting. Why is that? Is it to do with the economics of newspapers, that perhaps it's cheaper to have columnists than to hire reporters? Though I have to say, columnists and the whole get paid a lot more than the reporters do. Or is it actually demand-led? Is it the fact that partly there's been this collapse, apparently, of interest in trust in politics? People don't want to read about politicians, and so they fill the pages with comment instead. I think it's probably a, a mixture of three things. First of all, you're right, the economics. If you're a newspaper proprietor these days, you can put your journalists um, in a nice, um, tidy glass box outside the middle um, of whatever city you're reporting in, and you can squirt the, the, the basic facts intravenously to them um, through the internet. You can, you can do your work by Google. Um, you've got your marketing people who've told you what your target audience is, and you simply take the facts that you've got through the internet and rewrite them and present them for your target audience. And it's incredibly cheap compared to actually uh, hiring genuine reporters who might go out and stumble over something that they didn't know Are you know talking from personal experience here? Is this yes, what it was like editing absolutely. The Independent? Which well, I mean, The Independent, which was, I have to say, um, in some ways the most interesting and in every way uh, the most unsuccessful part of my professional career. I was the only, only newspaper editor in Fleet Street to be fired from the same job twice in six weeks. Um, defenestrated, refenestrated, and then de-refenestrated or whatever. Um, but, you know, th the struggle there was to persuade the owners that they couldn't simply keep cutting back on real reporters. Um, uh, I better not mention names, but David Montgomery, then um, <laughs> the chief executive of the Mirror Group, would constantly be asking me uh, why we needed people like uh, Robert Fisk out there, who was, uh, who was causing trouble all around the place. We could get the stuff from the wires. What was the point in paying somebody to live out uh, in the Middle East and actually report? Um, that was, so it's the technology, the cheapness. Um, I do think that we live, and that's partly the fault of journalists, in a kind of pretty trivial celebrity-driven culture at the moment, and therefore um, you, can, you can fill up the paper with that stuff. But the other reason is 
there isn't really a reason. It's just laziness. We've drifted into it in the trade. And that's partly why I wanted to make the point in the book. If you go back over British journalism, I mean, I read papers going back to the 1660s. I spent a lot of time sitting there reading old newspapers. And it's really interesting because you go through phases when papers are just brimming with life. You pick up a newspaper from the 1840s, and it's like, you know, 101 sort of truncated Dickens novels slammed together. It's fascinating. And then 20 or 30 years later, most British newspapers seem to be terribly dull. And I just think we're going through a dull phase, and I think we've drifted into it, and I think we can reverse it. Now, of course, as you point out in my trade, um, journalism has always been a pretty rough business. Yeah. In fact, one of the joys of this book, really, are the anecdotes and the accounts, the extraordinary accounts of drink-fueled yeah. excesses by journalists you've encountered in your own professional career. That's right. Um, certainly when I... When and I, participated in yourself. And participated in. I mean, I... I Enthusiastically I, at some stage. I, I, was, I was very rarely properly sober, I think, in all the years I was reporting as a, Even a young reporter. Even the BBC board, I seem to recall. Um, yeah, the, well, the BBC story, it, it's true. I, I, I mean, I fell into journalism. Um, because at uni after university, it was, I, I started to do a, a PhD, and I wasn't really very good at it, and no one was very interested in it, rightly. Um, and, but, it, but I couldn't do anything. I mean, I couldn't, um, I had no entrepreneurial skill, I had no technical skill, I could speak no language, I stumbled by in English, but that was about the lot. Um, I, I was really unsuited and unfitted for, for, for professional life, which is why uh, I ended up as a journalist, um, <laughs> obviously. But very common story. It's a very common story. Um, but, uh, but I first of all tried the BBC, and uh, th they had a graduate training scheme, and I applied for it. And I was, I was attractively uh, accoutred in those days with a little red Lenin beard. And um, I had all my political badges on my coat and so that on. That went down well today. That went down very well. And I, I, was, I was well uh, read in, in uh, public affairs because I read some Marxist newspaper every day, so I knew what was going on. <laughs> anyway, I, I was completely unsuited uh, for this job. But I went down. I went through the first set of interviews for the BBC board, which are reasonably testing aptitude interviews and decided I was doing terribly well and it was um, central London it was very hot middle of summer went off and had a few pints to kind of steady my nerves and then fell asleep in Regent Street in Regent Gardens um, woke up at about five minutes time before my my proper interview was due ran down and of course got that absolutely blank mind that you can get if you've had a couple of pints and fallen asleep. And I can, all I can remember is I can remember the silhouettes because they did that sort of uh, Stasi thing of, of interviewing you with their backs to the window so you couldn't see their faces. Um, and even I became aware that everybody was speaking very slowly <laughs> to me and rather kindly. And there was one lady who said after a so what would you like to do at the BBC? And I couldn't think of anything about the BBC. And so she persisted, being a decent person. She said, would you like to be a sports reporter at the BBC? And I said, yes, I would. And then somebody else acutely said, are you interested in sport? And I said, no. So it didn't, it didn't work very well. Um, but no, I mean, th I, I suppose the serious side is, uh, you know, I, a lot of my, uh, not a lot, th 
three of my close friends mm. uh, died of drink mm. um, by the time they were in their sort of certainly early 50s. And it, 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 is, it, it is, is a drink-sodden culture, yeah. always has been. These, are these tales of heroic um, exploits uh, fueled by drink? I mean, you know, mentioning no names, or you possibly will mention them, I don't know, but uh, they still somehow seem to get the work done. I mean, it just beggars belief how they, could have, how they achieved it. I can't understand, really, looking back on it, particularly when I started in The Scotsman, how some of us got that paper out. Um, given how much was being drunk, and I could, I could mention many names, and some of them are probably here, so I certainly won't. But, um, Same in Fleet Street, wasn't it, in the 60s and 70s? Fleet Street was just uh, awash with drink. Um, the Commons was awash with drink. Um, and, of course, politics was a very heavy drinking trade. In many ways. There was one um, late-lamented Scottish MP. There's a, there's, there's a restaurant that we used to go to uh, called the Pulo Po, um, where they had this sort of French peasant thing of having kind of three or four litre bottles of wine on the table, and they would charge you um, by the amount of wine that you'd drunk by the end of the meal. And there was one uh, eminent Scottish MP who, didn't, who thought it was incumbent upon us to finish the bottle and had to be helped out of the uh, taxi by the police at the other end uh, when he returned to the Commons. But no, I mean, it's... it's, it's it's not, it's not like that. It's not like that. Now. And we have a paradox. We have, I mean, it's, it's more sober, and yet it's some, somehow less reliable. I mean, what is it about contemporary journalism, which, apart from your, your views about the commentariat, what is it about news reporting? Because it seems to me that there is a, a, a tremendous frustration among people I come across who, first of all, hate and loathe you if you tell them you're, you're a journalist. I mean, journalists are the only profession which is regarded in less high esteem than, uh, than politicians. But there, there's an anger at their inability to rely on the newspapers, which are essential for any democrat, democratic country to function properly, to rely on what they, they s read in the newspapers um, as being you know, honest, truthful, and a fair reflection of what's going on in politics. Part of it is the money structure. I mean, follow the money. Um, columnists get paid relatively so well and reporters are paid and valued so little at the moment that it's not surprising that uh, younger people coming into the trade don't desperately want to be reporters. And we're at the stage now where, on many papers, there are so few really good, proper, old-fashioned reporters, as you say, with shorthand, uh, prepared to follow their nose, prepared to work hard, um, that there isn't, um, there isn't the sort of paternal system to train the new people as they come in. Um, one of the people I mention in the book as an emblematic of what's gone wrong with British journalism uh, is Tony Leonard. Now, Tony Leonard uh, was the most prolific byline on the Daily Star uh, the year before last, or the last year the book was written. And I think in a period of six months or nine months, he had more than 800 stories in the Daily Star. Now, you will have gathered um, that Tony Leonard does not exist. Tony Leonard is a made-up byline because the star, like so many papers, was simply taking stuff off the internet and rewriting it. Um, and uh, they had so few reporters um, that they, they made up names. Now, this happens you know, across uh, many newspapers now. Um, newspapers are actually uh, fooling or lying to the people that read them by pretending that they have more reporters than they actually do. One of the interesting things, you mentioned Iraq earlier on, Ian. Um, it's not an inevitable decline. And actually, um, to my surprise in a way, I find when I was researching the book that foreign correspondence, uh, overseas journalism, is actually improving again because of the way the world is now shaped, because of what's happened in the Middle East, 
um, because of um, the breakup of the old Cold War um, system and some of the, the many wars, and most recently since 9-11. Um, newspapers have actually been forced to go out and recruit people abroad, some of whom are extremely good. And maybe that's significant, though, because it seems to me that the kind of epicenter of the sort of decay of journalism is in Westminster, and it has something to do with this kind of deadly embrace between politicians and journalists, something, something which emerged in the 80s and 90s, and is to do with, um, well, first of all, politicians' obsession with spin and presentation, uh, which they learned largely from journalists, we, should, uh, we should, should say, and the fact that journalists kind of willingly conspire through, you know, organizations like the lobby and what have you to, um, you know, manipulate the, the news in all sorts of ways to present them either for the agenda of their newspapers or for the agenda of the politicians. And somewhere along the line there, in that kind of embrace, um, well, the readers have got kind of left out. And they just don't, they don't believe it. They just, and that's why newspapers are not selling now. I mean, all newspapers circulations are in decline. Well, if what do we do about that? Well, I was going to say, if journalism was any other part of public life, journalists would be going for it um, and pointing out its, its failure with bony stabbing fingers uh, every day of the week. Any way you cut it, it seems to me, um, my trade is in terrible trouble. Uh, if you look at newspaper circulations, they have been slithering downhill for years and in some cases uh, very fast. If you look at the bottom line or profit, um, a similarly appalling story. If you say, okay, well, let's put all that to one side, look at the question of trust, as you were mentioning, we're losing on trust. Um, of course, because it's us we're talking about, we never really mention it. That's part of the reason for doing this book. Um, Who do you blame? Is it the politicians essentially to blame, or is it the journalists? It's journalists. I mean, I, for spin. Well, because, because it, it has been, as you say, a clammy embrace. But if you look at the history of um, spin under new labor, if you like. It's a very simple story in a way, which is that during the declining years of John Major's government, when uh, the left-wing press were against them and the right-wing press were against him over Europe as well. So he had a lot of the press uh, against him. Then there was Black Wednesday and the collapse of authority. New Labour cynically but brilliantly collaborated with the press um, to mock that government to death. And a lot of what was done, looking back on it, was embarrassing and wrong. And um, you, you remember the glee with which Alistair Campbell came up with the story about John Major's underpants. And everybody followed that up, and they thought it was so brilliantly clever. And they took lots of disparate things, and they put them together, and they said, it's called sleaze. Now, John Major's uh, speech on Back, Back to, to Basics wasn't actually about the sexual habits of politicians or anybody else. It was about something rather wider and, dare I say it, quite important. But that was taken, put together with uh, Neil Hamilton's escapades, put together with various other stories, and woven into a single theme about the John Major government, a theme of decay, and it was called sleaze. And it was invented, it was done between groups of journalists and people like Peter Mandelson um, at that time. What New Labour thought was that when they came into power, journalists would forget all about that stuff, hugely enjoyable as it had been, and would then treat them with respect uh, and deference and attention. Um, and it, that, that indeed lasted. It lasted for all of about five days. Um, <laughs> and what we then did is we took sleaze and we turned it into something else and we called it spin. And so that everything they said um, was spin, and nothing they said could possibly, by definition, be true. That 
was also, I think, because of the way that Alistair Campbell and others treated newspapers. I mean, for a while, they genuinely believed you could have the, the Guardian guys in and tell them one thing about Europe, and the Daily Mail guys in and tell them another thing about Europe. And somehow, these people would never speak to each other or read each other's newspapers or notice that different messages were being put out. And people say to me that, you know, it was brilliantly clever and successful spin. By the time Alistair left number 10, I don't think there was a single newspaper, except for the Times, which had done a you know, was, w was close to Blair for all sorts of reasons. There wasn't a single newspaper which supported uh, Tony Blair. Now, what part of that strategy was clever? It was a disaster. But politicians, I mean, Sorry, Labour, Labour insist that uh, they've learned their lesson that uh, they're not spinning anymore, they've given up, there was far too much obsession with presentation, um, that no spin is a new spin. That was uh, one line I heard from, from one of them recently. But at the same time, they're addicted to it, aren't they? I mean, they can't give it up. They are better. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that David Hill, who's the new number 10 spokesman, does try a lot harder to keep out of things. I mean, the number of times uh, where he's clearly been tempted to dive into the Blair-Brown uh, issue and has then hauled himself back and shut up uh, is quite impressive. Uh, he gets sad. He gets disappointed with people like me. He gets lugubrious. Um, but he doesn't try and shout and threaten to get rid of your job and, 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 and fire, get you fired and all that. But news management hasn't, uh, hasn't died. News hasn't, management's I mean, always there. I mean, if if we take, take the war against terror, take Tony Blair's speech before he went away to his anonymous destination in Barbados. Um, <laughs> he, made, he made this speech about how they're going to crack yeah. down. For the next few days, the papers were filled with stories about how they were going to reintroduce the treason laws to attack people who were uh, sympathizing with terrorism. And this created the impression that the government was cracking down. But in fact, the idea of treason, as Lord Faulkner had to say in the Today programme was just a non-starter. Was that not similarly an exercise of trying to condition the press without and, and actually but, but creating but a misleading impression of what the government's actually doing? If so, and I, I was aware at the time, so I don't exactly know who briefed that story, but whoever did, you know, as with the broader story of spin, merely further undermined um, the government's credibility. Mm. It just mm. doesn't work. If you brief something and then it falls apart within a few days, um, your next briefing is going to be that much but less impressive. Andrew Gilligan, I have to ask him, though you can't answer. Andrew Gilligan, was he right or was he wrong? A bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, no, that's, that's that, I mean, e even for somebody who's still under BBC um, omerta, that's, that's a weaselly reply. Um, what I think about, about Andrew in that story was that, first of all, he was onto something that was clearly fundamentally and strongly based. You know, there was a big problem about uh, the intelligence. Exactly who did what is much harder. And I think because of the way the, the broadcast was made um, and then the way the story developed afterwards, he left himself and therefore the BBC wide open. Alistair Campbell was in trouble and he saw a fissure down which he could ram the government's counterattack. Um, and he hesitated not for a second. Now, you know, it wouldn't have taken much for Andrew to think that he's not a political reporter. I, you know, I wish he'd, he'd, he'd worked more closely with, our, with us because um, it, it's, it's a brutal, dirty game and you have to be very, very careful what you're saying and exactly what you're saying. Particularly and, you know, pin the whole thing the down. <laughs> exactly. So um, that, that's why I say he, he was a bit right and a bit wrong. I mean, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of 
truth in what he reported, as we know, but exactly who was responsible um, for what happened between the intelligence and the dossier, I think is a much harder story. And I think probably it's much more to do with the story of um, groups of people thinking that they know what their political masters are looking for, um, their political masters never quite demanding, or, you know, it's, 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 it's more subtle. It's about glances and, and expressions on faces. You know, it's not about somebody coming in saying, right, let's, let's rewrite this stuff. Good, an answer of masterful prudence. <laughs> Very difficult subject. But look, just before we throw it open to the audience, um, because that's an uh, important part of this, this event, um, how does journalism clean up its act? I mean, what's your, where do we go from here? I think it's, um, if we talk about newspapers in particular, um, it's slightly different with, with broadcasters, but in newspaper terms, it's about editors asking themselves why their circulations, whether they're based in Edinburgh or Glasgow or London, over 20 or 30 years keep sliding down. Is it inevitable? I don't think it is. If you look, if you look at you know, uh, sales of good, well-written books, they're going up. You know, people are sales of uh, theatre tickets, um, you know, vaguely arty films. Almost every other way you look at it, this is actually not a country. Uh, which is dumbing down. There's an appetite for information, there's an appetite for news, there's an appetite. So what is it wrong, what's going wrong in, in newspapers and journalism? And the answer is, it's the way we've been doing it. So it's time for newspapers to employ more reporters, get people out there, get more fresh, original, straightforward, old-fashioned reporting in. But you don't see any room for regulation? I don't think regulation can make newspapers better. Or an academy better. of journalism, or kite marks and newspapers. No, not really. No, it's because it's not a profession, and it never has been. It is a trade, um, and it's a highly competitive, market-driven trade. And I don't think you can impose those things. Um, you know, the Guardian is going to relaunch in a couple of weeks, three weeks' time, and they've bet the farm on it. You know, they've they've put in new presses because it's got a new shape. And there's no presses in Britain that can that it can accommodate this new shape. And if they've got their gamble wrong. I think that you know the future of the paper is seriously in doubt. Um, now they really, say, well, it's a huge amount of money they're putting on this, it's, and they've got to get a big, big boost in sale, and then hold that boost in sale. Now they say one of the ways they're doing that is going back to proper reporting, going back to a more traditional, old-fashioned division between news and comment, because they feel that that's what people want. Do they have the people to deliver that? Are they going to pursue it ruthlessly? We will, you know, it's going to be a fascinating story to watch. Well, let's see if that's what people want. Um, in the uh, audience, now we have two microphones. We have about half an hour here for uh, comments, uh, questions preferably, and short questions. Um, if we can get some indication of uh, who's uh, uh, wanting to, uh, to get in, we'll start across on this side with gentlemen uh, in the front. Um, speaking as a, a columnist and therefore a recycler of garbage, can I <laughs> ask Andrew Mark this why, one. if his thesis is correct, that in fact the reason for the decline in sales of newspapers is the lack of r objective reporting rather than uh, opinion, the, most, the single most successful newspaper which every other newspaper strives to copy is the one which is opinion from front page to back is absolutely cast in its, it, it, its opinions are cast uh, in name and shame, which is the Daily Mail. Yeah, sure. It has been by any account over the last 20 years a 
an extremely successful newspaper? Is it in fact because readers actually like their newspapers to have very strong opinions and they like to be able to rely on them? Some do and some always will. And you're right in the sense that the Daily Mail does it more relentlessly and with greater professionalism and, by the way, of course, putting a lot more into its form of journalism in investment than any other newspaper does. But I think the mistake is to think that that's what everybody wants. Um, you know, I, I feel that if you look at what's happened to the ex-broadsheet press, not all of it and not all of the time, that to think that they can copy the Daily Mail and that's what people want more and more of is not so. I mean, I'm, I, I bear the scars on my back from the independent days when we tried to make the independent uh, more opinionated, if you like, more like a liberal leftish Daily Mail. Didn't work. Certainly didn't work when I was doing it. I don't even think it's, 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 I think it's being done better by Simon Kellner than I ever did it, but I don't think it's really working if you look at the numbers for them now. So I, I do think there is a hunger for proper reporting. Um, and I think the Daily Mail is a sort of brilliant anomaly, and there will always be a market for that. You know, that part of the market will always exist. Just the rest of us should keep well away from it. That was a distinguished Times columnist, Magnus Linklater. Feel free to identify yourself if you wish. I mean, you know, it happened. Have to. It's not a truth session, but it's useful to know who's, who's speaking. Lady in pink. Well, I'll come clean because I work for a local radio station where we have real reporters. But I'm also aware that over the years, um, it's gone from being, you know, a cub reporter on a newspaper and working your way up. There's lots of university courses now for journalists. What would be your advice to somebody taking a uni course to do journalism? Don't. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> a um, nice closed question from a journalist. Thank you very much. No. Um, you talk about, Andrew, um, I'm simply a reader, um, the garbage. Isn't part of the trouble that we don't want to buy so many newspapers? There's just so much garbage in them. You know, the Times, are, you know, 150 pages, and, and so much you just don't want to read. When, I the remember wartime time when there was about six or eight pages to a newspaper, and you, you handled it better. There's something in our psyche that can't handle this vast amount of newsprint? Um, well, I mean, I get all the papers, so I'm all, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, almost all the papers, and I have my own little rules, some of which I mentioned in the book, about how to deal, uh, how to identify what's worth reading and what's not. So, you know, the rule about quotation marks. Uh, look for quotation marks and attribution in a story if you're going to take, you know, not always, but it's a good indication as whether the reporter has actually interviewed somebody out there who knows what they're talking about and it's real. If there's quotation marks in the headline, be very dubious about reading any of the story. Um, should, because, should anyone you know, believe any political story which is based on unattributable quotes? And 90% of them are. You should believe a lot of the time that somebody has, has said all of that. But you then have to ask yourself, why has so that person said it to this journalist and who are they, you know? So, I mean, I take a lot of it. It's wide open to abuse, though, isn't it? It's I mean, completely wide open to abuse. And it's, it's, you know, a lot of it, I think, is only read by a, a few thousand people who are part of that particularly closed, bickering world. Well, I don't know. So many political stories are based on unattributable quotes. Sorry, anyway, this is not a dialogue. One more question from this side, and then we'll shift it across the other side of the forum. What has the reaction been in the BBC to the Hutton Inquiry? And are you happy with that reaction, or how unhappy are you? 
Well, I was very unhappy, obviously, at the time it all happened. Um, Greg Dyke was a charismatic leader of the BBC, uh, such as we've never had before, really. Um, and Gavin Davis uh, in his way, too. And to lose both of them uh, in such uh, a short and dramatic way did traumatize the BBC. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, I have to say, and this is not just me being corporate man, I did not then go through a, a period when I felt there was a new timidity or censorship imposed upon me. I had a couple of good stories uh, in the months afterwards. In one case, single-sourced. Uh, in another case, double-sourced. Um, in both cases, um, I did not uh, name the person who gave me the story, um, and the BBC had to Which take it on. Um, well, one was um, the first story which said that the government at uh, a very high level now believed they would, they would never find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, and um, it caused a kerfuffle, and Downing Street got very angry about it, but it was true then and true now. Um, and the other one um, was when uh, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair did their deal over um, delaying the Euro announcement and fudging the five tests. Um, which again was, was well sourced. And in both cases, it caused the BBC, as it were, trouble in the sense that number 10 were angry about the stories and tried to rubbish them. But nobody, I have to say, in the BBC said to me that I shouldn't have done it at all. So my experience has been, has been okay since Hutton. I don't think we've lost our nerve. Next question. Could we stick precisely on this Iraq kerfuffle point that you've just made? Given that Fisk and Coburn informed reporters on the spot and what they were writing. Why did the lobby rubbish those of us who thought that the dossier of September uh, 2002 was absolutely flawed? Anybody who criticized that was rubbished by almost the whole lobby. Why was this so? That was Tam Diel, former uh, leader of the House, Labour MP. I don't think that when, when that first dossier came out, I'm not talking about, I mean, we're talk, talking about the second dossier in both cases, I think, aren't we? Yes, we're not talking about the so-called dodgy dossier, which is separate. Um, well, I hope I didn't rubbish it. I don't think I did. But um, I did not believe... It never crossed my mind that um, the dossier's uh, factual basis was quite so ropey. Why because it, had, it, it Because it seemed to me that when a dossier like that comes out from the government, if, if, it's, if it's wrong, it's going to be found out so easily that they wouldn't dare produce something so dodgy. I, I always read, read what Robert Fisk was writing, and I should say, I should say also, a long time before that, Robert Fisk, when he was, I was editing The Independent, used to come in to me. You're crazy. No, no, no. Well, used to come in to me uh, from time to time at The Independent and say, um, I've, got, I've, I've got an interview with, um, with Osama bin Laden, I would say, who? And he would say, Osama bin Laden, he's working out of Africa, and he says he's going to wreak terrible vengeance on the, on the United States of America for what's going on in... Uh, in Saudi Arabia, and and I published we published I think one or two interviews with Osama bin Laden by Robert Fisk, 
And after that, I said, oh, not, not more Osama bin Laden stuff. You know, it's never going to run this. Um, it's just, just um, fess up to that. Um, no, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I do feel guilty, actually, about how we all um, dealt with the dossier when it first came out. And I was incredulous um, about how much of it was wrong. Now, I don't think that the government itself um, cynically disbelieved everything in the dossier. If you look at the, the transcripts which have come out of Washington um, about the conversations in Number 10 ahead of the war... This is a Downing Street memo. Yeah, they were clearly concerned that they were going to be subject to uh, biological and chemical attack when they invaded Iraq. Um, and that was a private conversation. There was no point in, in, in that being um, fictitious. Um, the, we could all see aspects of the dossier um, that we were dubious about, but I do think most of us got overexcited. Um, I do think um, it's something that we all learn from. You actually do talk in your book, I was looking for the passage there, about uh, September 2002 when the lobby actually connived, in a sense, in that's creating... One of, that's, one of the worst, that's one of the worst examples. That's one of the worst stories in the book. Um, briefly, what happens in, in that, and it's, and it's worth talking about. Um, it's in the section of the book which is about how news is put together and confected and the danger and power of pack mentality journalism. I was uh, traveling with the political lobby in uh, Blair's plane when he went over. We now know, um, but we didn't at the time, to agree final details of the war plan for Iraq. And we flew over to Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington. And uh, he then went on by helicopter um, to um, Camp David. Tony Blair, on these flights, um, almost always comes back to talk to the journalists. It's off the record, um, and um, everybody is huddled around him, and everybody's looking for a story out of it, because don't forget, all the newspapers have paid quite a lot of money uh, for the seats on the plane. Blair Force One, we call it. And um, the atmosphere is convivial. And on this particular occasion, uh, it was very disappointing, because he was asked about the, the same stories, that we're talking about the same stories from the dossier, about um, was Saddam really um, building a nuclear uh, program? Did, was he really actively trying to find um, the materials for uh, nuclear weapons? And Blair, to his credit, didn't go, certainly didn't go further than he'd gone in public, um, didn't push the story any further, just confirmed what he'd already said. And he was then asked, was it really the case that any British interests were seriously threatened? To which he replied the effect that, well, if there was, uh, if there was a war in the Middle East, um, if Saddam um, caused trouble again, Britain would be sucked in. Uh, don't forget there was the base in Cyprus. Um, he did believe there were some long-range missiles. And that was all. And in terms of what he'd said in public at the time, it was unexceptional. Now, from my point of view, the BBC, though, well, there we go. That's, that's, um, so, so there's not much to report when we land. But the Sunday lobby were under the cosh to produce stories for the Sunday papers. And they got together and 
by the time they'd finished, the nuclear part of the story and the threat to British interests part of the story had been put together and woven in such a way that you would have thought that Birmingham was about to be imminently attacked by nuclear weapons launched from Baghdad. And that story then ran in the Sunday papers. By the time we got back to, we actually landed at Andrews Air Force Base and had spent a few hours hanging around there, the first editions of the Sunday papers were coming through the fax machine. And of course, number 10 were completely delighted because it was exactly the sort of message that they wanted to get out, and yet they were not in any sense re responsible for that, um, if you like, fabrication or grotesque exaggeration or whatever you call it. It was, well, I didn't do it, but it was collectively, it was us. It was the reporters there, desperate for a story, desperate um, for it to be as exciting um, and dramatic as possible. Astonishing story. Next question, please. Yes, when you were discussing the, the crisis facing journalism and newspapers and you were blaming journalists and politicians, do you not think a third component is a lazy readership, a sort of um, with truncated attention span that doesn't want in-depth reports, they're, they're comfortable, they don't want to read about other countries and problems they're having? You get the press we deserve. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe that's the case. There's not much we can do about it if, if the case. I mean, I think if you look at the increasing use being made of the internet and, and the fact that people are apparently prepared to search out um, information for themselves if they don't get it from the mainstream media, I think that would be a dangerous conclusion for uh, journalists to draw because I think people uh, are hungry for information, do want the facts, and will find ways of searching them out. Okay, we'll just, uh, if you keep your hands up until the microphone gets to you, that would be uh, great. Gentlemen, um, yeah. Hi. And then you can but pass it back after you. Okay. Uh, both you and Simon Kellner uh, attempted to run front page leads on the Independent that were very opinion driven. But yeah. you say in your book that uh, your outlook on journalism in general is uh, very different, but you don't expand. Could you please uh, characterize that difference of opinion? Do you live by your own principles? Well, the, as I said I the earlier on, I have the scars on my back from trying it on the Independent. Um, the Independent at that stage, uh, and the whole sorry story, uh, is most of the sorry stories in the book, um, w was very much uh, the weakest paper in Fleet Street, struggling for survival, and above all, looking for a way of differentiating itself um, from the rest. And that um, was one way of trying to differentiate that paper at that particular time. It didn't work in circulation terms, and the problem, and I think, I mean, I think the Independent does it much, as I said earlier on, I think Simon Kellner's doing it much better than I did it as an editor. Um, now, he's much more professional in that respect. But the problem with it is that if you use your front page again and again and again to shout, to say, this is what we really think, then you either repeat yourself endlessly or you run out of things to shout about. It's very, very hard uh, it, to modulate it, your front page. But in devoting your front page to opinion, isn't that going against everything you're calling for in, in this yes. uh, book? And that was your opportunity to put these into practice. Well, as it, because We're, we learn from experience. I mean, you know, um, I, I would also repeat, there are different kinds of opinion. I don't want to say that all opinion 
uh, you know, is, is a bad thing, and I don't say that in the book. What I'm attacking in the book is the, the polyfiller, airless, repetitive columns, either about um, you know, life in my bathtub or you know, what, I, what I read yesterday. Um, there are lots of reporters, um, and you know, they can range from the left and the right. I mean, you know, whatever you think of Peter O'Born, he went out to Afghanistan and trudged around and brought back facts uh, from there. Polly Toynbee on the other side spends a lot of time interviewing people, picking up the phone, making the numbers right. That is, in a sense, a form of higher reporting. Now, you can do that on the front page, you can do it anywhere you like, um, and it's still valuable. Next question. Yes, you mentioned the proprietor. Sorry, I should declare an interest. I work for the European Parliament here in Scotland. Um, you mentioned proprietorial attitudes to, to Europe by newspapers, and also the BBC has had its own recent inquiry into coverage of Europe. Do you think coverage of Europe is a problem for journalists, or do you think coverage of Europe is a problem for European politicians here and abroad? And if you pass it back, before Andrew uh, answers that, can I just get an indication of, are there, are there a lot of people waiting up here who are wanting to, wanting to ask a question, just so I know? Okay, we'll get the microphone to you uh, to next. Okay. Uh, European Parliament, um, it's a complete nightmare for journalism, um, and I think it's in, the, the problem is inherent um, in the way the EU is structured, because it is such a complicated um, interplay of different meshing power systems with its own impenetrable language um, that it's a very, very hard story for journalism to report. What I would gently and tentatively suggest about that is that it's very hard to envisage a successful uh, democratic functioning system that is too complicated for voters to understand. Okay. Uh, I think, yeah, gentlemen, the red yeah, cool. next will be the lady up here, I think. Yeah, at the back, we can get the microphone to her. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. Um, Andrew, you've been asked to blame uh, readers, you've been asked to blame journalists and politicians. Isn't as much of the problem to do with owners, both in their pressure to cut costs and the way they foist kind of unrepresentative agendas on the newspapers? To pick two examples, the Express's fascination with the uh, Al-Fayed conspiracy theory over the death of mm. his son and the Barclay brothers, frankly, far too right-wing even for the Scottish Conservative Party, point of view they put through the Scotsman. Well, it's not a, it's not a news story, it's not a new problem, is it? I mean, it's... Um, I've got to be careful here. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you are a, you know, a relative but wealthy and aggressive um, self-made outsider, um, in British life, and you want to exercise the maximum amount of power as quickly as possible, there's no faster route to doing it than buying yourself a newspaper. Um, and you see the same trajectory um, again and again and again. Um, now, you know, the papers that um, the first harm, the magazines that the first Harmsworth um, started with. Uh, are not exactly the same kind of magazines as Richard Desmond started with. Um, there's a bit of a... They were sort of bicycling magazines and boxing magazines rather than Asian babes. Um, but there's exactly the same trajectory of buying your way suddenly into a position uh, of enormous power and then exercising it. And, you know, they, these are... It's, it's a very, very um, familiar, repetitive story. But I don't see any way around it. It's not the case that newspapers run by trusts 
have always been successful. There's a lot of people say, well, you know, look at The Guardian with the Scott Trust. Isn't that a much better newspaper? Well, maybe, but then you have to look, go back over the number of newspapers run by trusts which have gone under uh, and folded uh, over the years, um, News Chronicle and, and, and many before that. Should there be controls on foreign ownership of the press? I mean, like in America, you, you know, you can't... Uh Conrad Black couldn't go up and buy, buy up the New York Times and the Washington Post because it's, it's, uh, it, not, it's not allowed there. I mean, people say that, well, here we just allow anyone to buy up our press. I don't know. I mean, you know, there are, there are good proprietors. Um, and I've, you know, although I fell out with him spectacularly, um, I thought Tony O'Reilly was basically a good proprietor. Mm -hmm. um, and there are less good proprietors. I think it's very, I think it's very hard to be absolute. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. The... Um failure of the Tory party to lose the 1992 election seems to have, to a certain extent, led to its current meltdown. Do you think it was also a nail in the coffin of good journalism, or good political journalism? Ah, that's very interesting. Um, it, certainly, it certainly produced a period of extraordinary uh, poison and malevolence, mistrust, um, sneering, um, I, think, I think probably um, it, was a, it was a low point uh, from which we still have not recovered. I think that's true. Um, I think, the, as, as I said earlier on, I think you know, papers on the left and centre-left um, were hostile, journalists as well, were hostile, uh, particularly to the Conservatives, because they thought somehow uh, they should have gone at that period, um, and it was, it was Labour's turn. Um, and John Major just was not. I mean, he's in many ways a thoroughly decent man, but he did not have... Um, the strength of personality and charisma to, to make a kind of powerful narrative in his own right. But much more to the case, um, what happened with Black Wednesday and the Maastricht Treaty turned almost all um, influential right-wing journalists uh, against him and his government. And, and the way they turned against him was even nastier than the kind of attacks that were coming from uh, the left. Um, it, was, it was pretty... Looking back on it, it was a shameful time. Okay, lady in the front here, just before you ask your question, can I get an indication of the people I've missed out across here? Yes, down here. Anyone else around here? No, that's fine. Okay. Do you think the seemingly endless desire for the latest celebrity story or any scandal has to die down before good journalism can come back to the helm it was once at? I think it has to be restrained a bit. Um, and in some respects, it, it is being restrained. I mean, it was, it was more rampant in uh, broadsheet papers or upmarket papers, whatever you describe them, a few years ago than it is now. It has gone down a bit. Um, it's always going to be there and always has been there. You know, if you look at uh, Edwardian newspapers, they were full of stories from the divorce courts where the full story was, you know, was um, laid out in cross-examination until the law was changed. And they were full of stories about, um, you know, airhead, vapid countesses and marchionesses running off with people. I mean, it was different kinds of celebrities, but it was still the same sort of thing. And I do think, I mean, I don't want to be too po-faced about it because, you know, we're all interested um, to a certain extent in gossip. And now we no longer live in small villages where we know everybody that we're gossiping about. In a sense, the newspapers and the soaps and so on provide a relentless source of familiar um, marionette characters to gossip about and there's always the there's always the cad there's always the sort of tart with a heart there's always the you know there's there's a relatively small number of um 
if you like, cast parts which are played again and again and again by different people. And I think that's always going to be the case. It's been suggested that um, the introduction of the new identity cards might make um, off-the-record um, talking to journalists much more difficult because um, the tracking of people through the vast amount of information that's available on the cards would make it very difficult for reporters to hide who it was they were meeting. Oh, number What's 10 will be pleased to hear that? that. I don't it's think... It's in the NUJ... Um, Really? It sounds a bit, to be absolutely honest with you, it sounds a tad paranoid that. I really, I, I mean, I, I, I mean it, it may be the case, but I don't, I don't quite see it myself. True. Probably means it's true. Um, it's, it is, I mean, it, you know, we do now live in, in, in a very uh, heavy surveillance society, but actually, you know, it's, it's not much to do with ID cards at the moment. It's just to do with these cameras everywhere. And um, we are watched and observed electronically as we buy and move around in an extraordinary way. And I, you know, it's, I think it's been one of the huge, huge changes of the last 10 years, really, that hasn't been much discussed. But I don't think ID cards of themselves would, would, would have that effect. Let me reassure you that you're not being televised in any CCT cameras or others. Um, on a lighter note, I hope we haven't heard the last of Mr. Snuffles. Would you care to comment? Uh, yeah. For oh. people who don't read the Daily Telegraph, I'm afraid, uh, Mr. Snuffles is a deranged and extremely bigoted guinea pig uh, uh, who I uh, write about from time to time. No, no, he's, he's, still, he's still as um, I th I offensive. I thought you said he was going to die because uh, you weren't allowed to write columns anymore. No, 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 I'm allowed to write columns, but I'm only allowed to write columns about guinea pigs. Which may account for my, my views on columns generally. Anyway. <laughs> Final question here. Just on a more encouraging note, I've just spent a month in Canada and I was so depressed I could hardly dare open a newspaper there. I must say it was a rather provincial part of Canada, but I don't think we should be too discouraged about our own press. At least we've got variety, and at least we've got, we've got sort of genuinely... Um, Rumbustious characters and some very very good writers in, in, in the press. I don't you know. I, I don't think the press is in terminal decline. I don't think journalism's in terminal decline. But it could get a lot better. Um, and we just we you know we need some. I'll tell tell one last very quick story about um, the kind of somebody I wished I'd got into the book and I heard about too late, who was the night news editor of the Daily Mirror when the Daily Mirror was at its height, and was a very, very fast-thinking guy. And I was hearing about him the other day, and he got a, a call late at night from somebody who'd been bothering the paper to say uh, that he'd invented a time machine which moved forward and backward in time and sideways in time. <laughs> forward, And um, the night editor, to everyone's amazement, slumped down and started to listen to this chap. He said, really, a time machine? What's your name? And he said, well, you're the first person who's taken me seriously. This chap said, well, I, night news editor said, I think... I think you should be taken seriously. In fact, I think you should bring your time machine into the Daily Mirror and we'd like to look at it. Really? That's marvellous. Wonderful. When can I bring it in? Yesterday, he said. <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, Andrew. He will uh, now be appearing yesterday in the <laughs> signing tent, which is in another location, but is um, temporarily 
um, positioned um, outside. If you could uh, wait, though, please, a moment till I get Andrew across there. You can then come continue uh, this discussion, get him to sign copies of his book, which is, I assure you, a right rollicking read. It's uh, absolutely hilarious, as well as being um, very uh, pointed in its criticisms of the state of uh, journalism. So finally, if I could just thank Lisa Stapleton, who is our um, <laughs> signer. I've been asked to remind anyone who didn't know that George Galloway is now uh, taking up the final day slot at the book festival, 11.30 on the 29th, if you want to hear um, a dose of George, uh, you can hear that. <laughs> but I'll just ask you to put your hands together for Andrew Mark. <laughs>